What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everybody. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I'm so happy to be here today with Adam Markowitz, co-founder and CEO of security compliance automation company, Drata. Adam, it's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be chatting with you this morning. Well, we're delighted to have you. And I wanted to just kick things off by helping our listeners understand who you are, the path that you've walked to get to where you are today as CEO of Drata. Can you walk us through your career a little bit? Tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. So I I grew up in Southern California, just north of Los Angeles. It's very spoiled when it comes to weather and very aware of that. Both my parents are from the East Coast and moved west before having us kids. Always love going back east to visit family as often as we can. I grew up obsessed with NASA, the dream of being an astronaut, and still to this day, really desperate to see humans step foot back on the moon or Mars. That obsession led me to UC San Diego for undergrad, where I studied aerospace engineering, and, and then USC, where I completed my master's in astronautical engineering. I always joke that it was an obvious choice because it literally had the word astronaut in the name, astronautical engineering. After It was actually after undergrad where I landed my dream job, though, working on NASA's space shuttle program as an mm. engineer. This was 2008, which was a tough year to graduate and try to mm. enter the workforce. The recession had just hit. Everyone wanted to know how I got that job, and I told them how I brought a makeshift portfolio into my job interviews on campus. I literally printed out photos of the engineering and extracurricular projects I worked on and stapled mm-hmm. it to the back of my resume. It was, it was really a way to stand out and just kind of showcase how passionate I was about aerospace. And in a way, my resume just wasn't going to be able to capture, and it worked. Mm-hmm. And that was the original motivation behind my first startup that I, was, I called Portfolium. And it was essentially a LinkedIn-like network for college students, and it was centered around this e-portfolio instead of a, of a traditional resume. And then in 2011, yeah, when NASA retired the space shuttle program, I, I left aerospace to start Portfolio. And it was an incredible journey through acquisition in 2019. The company was acquired by uh, Instructure, the makers of Canvas, mm-hmm. the learning management system. Here we are three years later with Drata. Wild. What a wild and interesting path. And I want to point out, our listeners obviously can't see it, but there's a toy space shuttle on the shelf behind you. (laughs) So that continues to be a passion. One thing that I think is so interesting about your background, you're a true rocket scientist and pursued that path. And then there was a thread of that experience, you finding a different way to tell your story and a different way to connect as a young professional and kind of building an entire company around that portfolio, but in a completely different space at tech. And now you all are in security compliance <laughs> automation, yet another completely different sector. And you and I talked about this the last time we spoke, but one of Breakline's central tenets is that excellence is transferable. And you're an amazing example of that. And so can you talk to us just about the stories that you told yourself about how you'd be able to jump from one industry to another, how you could tell that story, how, how you could jump in and, and add value, even when 
your background wasn't necessarily an obvious fit for those moves right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. I could speak to that a bit. I think they, they coined the term imposter syndrome now, yeah. which is a good, there's something to, to call it, which is nice. But yeah. I mean, I studied aerospace engineering. I had zero business background. I never took a, a business course, no coding background. I wasn't really surrounded mm-hmm. by entrepreneurs. And at the same time, my generation was being called entitled, not willing to work for other people and glamorizing entrepreneurship. And so, of course, there was there was doubt. But I guess for me, I mean, overcoming it was really about just knowing myself, right? I know that I'm attracted to difficult things. The harder the challenge, the more rewarding, the more, yeah, the more rewarding accomplishing it is. And just reminding myself that everyone starts somewhere. No idea ever comes out fully realized. Ideas are cheap and it's all about execution on those ideas. And that requires the determination. So no matter how much of an imposter I might've felt like in, in the sense of business or entrepreneurship, I, I know myself and know enough like, to know like no one's ever going to outdetermine or outwork me. That's my mm-hmm. one competitive advantage in anything I'm going to pursue. So I clung to that. Anytime I felt doubt or imposture syndrome, I just remind myself of that one thing. And I, all good, I think, companies or ideas are, are going to start with your own personal need, right? If it's a problem you're solving mm-hmm. for yourself, you're going to have a different attachment to it rather than just a you know, a business opportunity that looks good on paper. It's, mm-hmm. It's going to be tougher. And was that true for Drata as well? Where was the connection as you were kind of thinking about <clears throat> your next company and your next move? Exactly. Yeah, it came out of our mm-hmm. need with Portfolium, right? So Portfolium was this, this LinkedIn-like network for college students. And the mission was really to help students prove their skills to employers, right? So instead of listing your GPA and, and courses on a resume, that's going to look just like the next students. It was about showcasing evidence of your skills in this e-portfolio. Projects, papers, presentations. We want to showcase potential of a pedigree. This is one thing we, we really resonates with, with you all as well, right? Allow, in our case, students anywhere in the world, regardless of where they came from, to stand out for their potential. Allow them to really earn the trust of employers by, by proving they deserved it. So it was a grand vision. And, and like most startups, it was it's never a straight line. And so we had a bit of a chicken or the egg problem in the beginning with students on one side, employers on the other. So the key for us was partnering with them and then selling into colleges and universities. We built a student success and assessment offering on top of the network and began selling into universities in, in 2017. That was a real game changer for us because the universities would help populate the network with tens of thousands of students at a time. So over a you know, two-year stretch, we sold into just over 350 schools and had 5 million students in the network. But before a university would sign with us and provide any student information, they, of course, needed assurance of our security practices at the company. Right, so they would send us what are called security questionnaires, very common in SAS today. Every school had their own unique questionnaire. They'd range from 50 to sometimes 300 questions. There were questions about how we would encrypt data, how we back up data, to how we onboard and train employees, and, and basically everything in between. And they'd also ask if we had certain compliance certifications or, or attestations like a SOC 2 report. Because if you did, it would essentially knock out a majority of the questions or in some cases, replace the need to answer the questionnaire entirely. So over that two-year stretch of selling at universities, those requests for SOC 2 reports quickly became demands. It was turning into a table stakes for SaaS companies like ours. And that's attractive. But really, the first thing that attracted us to it was just the, the premise of it itself, right? Like we built Portfolium to allow students to prove their skills to employers with evidence in their e-portfolios. And now we were being asked to prove our security posture with evidence of a SOC 2 report. So earning trust by proving you deserve it is really at the core of, of both these companies, even though they're in yeah, different industries and can look different on the surface. And actually, just, just for those that don't know, right, a SOC 2 report, it's, it's an attestation report. 
you receive it after you complete a SOC 2 audit with an auditor and the reports attesting to the design and effectiveness of your security program, which among other things, a set of controls that you put in place to keep things secure. And they're extensive. They span a lot of areas of your business. So knowing what controls to put in place, how to put them in place, how to keep them in place, how to prove it to auditors year after year, that's, that's expensive and it takes a lot of time. And both of those actually only increase as your company grows in size. So yeah, after the portfolio acquisition, we built Drata to help companies streamline and automate that process. So it didn't matter if you're a big company or a small company, you could stand up and maintain your security and compliance posture and then prove it any day of the year with evidence that's being automatically collected by Drata. Thank you, Adam, for sharing that. And so we have two brake liners currently at Drata, Ari and Greta, and they both have amazing things to say about their experience. Part of what they talk about is how exciting it is to be at this phase of the company and building and serving customers and creating something new. And part of what they talk about is the culture that you all have established and that you're nurturing there. The reason why it came to mind now was just the comment you made about earning trust by proving you deserve it. I thought that was a really powerful statement. And of course, that transcends multiple lenses of our lives and careers, including how we form relationships with our teammates. I know that this is an important topic for you. Can you talk to us about culture and how you all are building that at Drata? Sure. Yeah. I feel like I could talk about culture all day. Mm-hmm. I think I could talk all day about what culture is not. <laughs> but you know Well let's let's do both. <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's definitely not ping pong tables and, and snacks. I'll stop there. I always looked at culture as you know the operating system for a company. It dictates everything. It's like it's literally dictates how you hire, who you hire, how you develop talent, how you build product. I mean, go on and on because culture really is the patterns of behavior across your company, across your employees. So strong culture could be a lasting competitive advantage and, and a weak one completely destroy your company. And it's either yeah, strong or weak. There's, there's no such thing as a non-existent culture, right? It's, there's always a culture. Actually, mm-hmm. one of the things Frank Slootman points out in his new book, uh, Amp It Up, which really resonates. If you haven't read it, definitely check it out. It's, he says, if you, if you do culture right, the culture of the company serves the mission of the company. So the culture needs to align to the mission. And then a strong culture becomes a force multiplier. And then, and then it's not just a competitive advantage. It's, as you know, Frank says, it's, it's the one differentiator that others can't copy. Right? They could try to copy your product, replicate your funding rounds, your marketing and messaging, but they can't replicate your culture. They used to always say there's, there's no one-size-fits-all set of values and behavior that works for every company at every stage. So, of course, it's something very unique to the company itself and to the company's mission and current stage of growth. I mean, take yeah, Drata, for example. It's, it's a rapid growth, a hyper-growth startup. And while that sounds exciting, and trust me, it is, <laughs> that's, that's not necessarily an easy or comfortable place to live every day. It's demanding and tense and fast-paced, but it serves the mission. And, and like a magnet, it attracts incredibly passionate, high-achieving group of people like Ari and Greta. And, and now they and myself, everyone, it's up to us to maintain it. Uh, it's not just a matter of buying into that culture from the beginning. It's, it's defending and upholding it. It's everyone's collective responsibility. It's never static, especially when you're growing so quickly, right? New people join every week. The values and behavior could change really quickly across an mm-hmm. org. So your culture could easily morph into something different. And Anyway, so I guess why it's you know a, a core competitive advantage is the one thing again competitors can't copy. It could be a force multiplier, and it dictates the decision making and overall the patterns of behavior specific to your company's mission, and, and that's what allows you to win. So, absolutely mm-hmm. top of mind all day, every day. And 
Adam, I've heard some people take a very organic posture toward culture, you know, just sort of letting it bubble up and be what it is. And then others who have been really structured and focused on creating patterns of behavior, as you said, that are designed to like in a very specific way. Mm -hmm. Could you talk to us about your approach? You have so much energy for (laughs) this topic. How did you all create the culture that you have at Strata now? Yeah, I mean, so I would definitely skew on the on the latter. I think it's it's something that needs to be, like I said, upheld and defended, and that could mean making hard decisions where you know certain things might not be tolerated at a company, and even if someone is performing at a high level but not matching the values or embodying the values day in and day out, stamping that out early is how you defend the culture. Versus, yeah, very organically, it gets things to go sideways really, really quickly. And so for us, you know, again, it starts with the values. Again, they're values that define the culture, but I always say true culture is embodied in the actions of the people and, the, and their patterns of behavior. So cultivating that is, is really important. And, and those values had to really align to our mission, right? Trust is at the center of everything that we do as a company. Our product, our company exists so that our customers could earn and keep the trust of their customers. So walking that walk, trust is at the center of literally everything we do, every decision that we make. And, and we're in a a highly competitive market as well. So we're looking for folks that are, you know, embrace that kind of highly competitive environment and have a healthy relationship with it. Again, it, it goes into pretty much every decision you make as a company, including especially how you hire, who you hire, the questions that you ask and how you get to know someone, because you want to make sure it's a good fit for them as well. No one wants to be walk into a situation of culture shock. We don't want that for anyone. And I know they don't want it themselves. So yeah, all things that we keep top of mind. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been thinking a lot just about ethics and how to show up in the world and how I want to show up in the world and how much respect I have for other people who really come to their work with like a commitment to values. And I can hear that in you and in, in the way that you think about your culture, your, your team, the business that you all are building, how you interact with your customers. You talk about trust and values, standing up for other people. Where is that coming from for you? Like, where is that? Where does that conviction come from? I don't really see any other way of doing it. It's one thing to have a vision of where you want to go, but how you get there to me is just as important, right? Really embracing and enjoying the journey. When you look back and maybe after going through an acquisition, you, you kind of have a different perspective and appreciation for it. You look back and you don't necessarily remember day zero when things just got started and you definitely don't even remember like the last day, but the middle, everything, like the longest part of any journey is the middle. And so that's, that's really, really just how I've always viewed it. And so much of, when everyone asks us what our competitive advantage is as a company, I always point to our culture and the people. It's like I said, it's just the lasting differentiator. It's the one thing that no one can replicate and it's what allows us to achieve what we've been achieving. And so you, you really, you hold it near and dear because mm-hmm. it's that important. You talked about interviewing people and really wanting to surface whether this is a good fit on both sides. Is there a question that helps you illuminate that? There's a bunch of questions, probably not any, any one individually. The stage that we're at, in the culture that we have, the environment that we're in, I like to know if 
people have high expectations for themselves and, and those that they work with, if they have a sense of urgency, if, if they're attracted to hard work and you know, exceeding expectations, do they believe that trust, I mean, outside of time, that trust is our most precious asset that needs to be earned and maintained? Because those are the non-negotiables here, right? It's incredibly rewarding and addicting to work in high performance teams in that winning culture. It's not for everyone. It, it, like I said, it's demanding, it's hard, but that's what makes it great. Like, if that's what resonates with someone, like those are the folks that, that we obviously want to engage with. And it's not the easiest thing to, to pull out in an interview situation. We do our best and then we iterate on it. We never claim to have it all figured out. And so we're constantly asking for feedback from the very people that we hire. One of the first things we ask them is what could we have done better? Or if you learned something about the culture that you weren't aware of before you started, what could we have asked or what could we have shared that would have allowed you to learn that upfront? That's another thing that I think we do really, really well here is there's no egos. We constantly mm -hmm. want to iterate no matter how well things are going, they could always be going better. And so constantly wanting to improve and just fighting complacency at all costs. That last comment, fighting complacency at all costs. You mentioned a couple of times your drive, your work ethic. When you were talking about imposter syndrome, you said, no one is going to outwork me or so, something to that effect. Where does that come from? <laughs> that intensity? Family, a really great upbringing that I am very appreciative of both my parents seeing it firsthand from them, being taught that you know, competition is a good thing, that when it's done with integrity and, and there's nothing better than giving someone your absolute best, knowing they're giving you their best. And no matter what, you're, you're going to learn from it. I grew up watching Kobe Bryant play basketball from LA. That's just 20 years of seeing it day in and day out that just kind of got in pretty deep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mamba mentality. And what did your parents do? And even just in role modeling to you? It was the things that they would say and do, especially in, you know, I played a lot of competitive sports growing up, mostly competitive soccer. And it was the, the behaviors that they would not reward, but really point out. And it wasn't just when we won. It was how I, I carried myself on the field when we were losing or how it didn't matter what the score was. It was always going to give my best. And I guess maybe my generation too, I always had this like interesting relationship with, with competition. I don't know, maybe it's just my own experience, but it seemed like competition was something that was frowned upon or, or turned into something that could be negative. And so whether I was up by five goals or, or down by five goals, I wasn't going to change the way I played. Growing up, there was specific instances I remember of even coaches that would say, hey, you know, the game's over, stop trying so hard, or hey, we're, we're up by so much, stop. And it was in those moments that I specifically remember, even at a young age, that my, my parents would, would step in and then make a point to, to tell me how that's, that's wrong. <laughs> and it's okay to give your best every single play and that that's how you show respect to your competition, to your teammates. You show up every day, every play. It was great. And now, you know, this is, this is my outlet in, in a way. I get to bring that same competitive fire. I'm surrounded by it. Again, I played team sports growing up. So there's, there's a lot of parallels, of course, to company building. So I always look to assemble the best team. I always want to ask people what they're the best in the world at. What's their one superpower? Mm -hmm. Because I want to surround them with people with complementary skill sets. Because as much as I want well-rounded people, I want the best performing team. So it's okay. We all have weaknesses. We could all work on them. But I'm really interested in tripling down on someone's absolute strengths and surrounding them with people that can help fill those weaknesses because that's, I think, how you build winning teams. Mm. So, Adam, you're not a veteran, but you hired veterans. And Ari, our brake is a veteran. He's a former Navy. But I can't help but 
feel and and hear some similarities in the way that you're describing your work, the way that you're describing your commitment to other people. It really reminds me of how our veterans talk about mission before self and how they're so other oriented. As I said, you have your space shuttle in the back. You're wearing a hat <laughs> that has the American flag on it. You feel like a very patriotic person to me. You know, somebody who's really proud of your community. Both my grandfathers, military veterans, just grew up with a profound appreciation and respect. And still to this day, thank every every veteran, every every everyone in uniform that I, I run into. And I think there's so much that we can learn from those folks. I think maybe even just being in San Diego, just just being surrounded by it here, there's a, a lot of opportunity to, like you said, transition and, and take skill sets and mindsets that just allow you to win in, in business. And I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and what I appreciate about that is you don't just say that because it's very easy to say, you know, thank you for your service. And it's a lot harder to hire someone <laughs> to help you build your team. But both of those are winning decisions and you you did the hard work on top of it. So I appreciate that about you. It's the, the right culture's embodied in your actions. It's it's one thing to say something or have it written down. So Adam, I could see how someone could look at you and it feels like you've always gone from strength to strength. You know, you're like astronautical bachelor's or master's degree and then NASA and then starting portfolio and selling it and starting Drata. Have you ever screwed up? You know, have you ever like face planted and had to recover from that? And, and I asked the question because I think it's so important to humanize the experience of building companies and we're not always winning at every single moment of every single day. And I think it helps give people perspective and inspiration when they know that even folks like you might've stumbled along the way. Every day, multiple mm. times a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's where you learn the most, right? I mean, I don't go as far as to say as I celebrate losses, but I definitely aim to learn from them and help, again, create that culture of sharing those losses so that we don't repeat mistakes, right? I'm, I'm all for learning fast by failing quickly and iterating. That's literally how I see teams move faster than than others who are waiting to get it just right. And it's never just right. And so time goes by and time is the most critical asset here. By all means, let's let's fail quickly and then learn from it and share it, which, which kind of goes against human nature. When there's a fire in the corner. You want to quickly put it out before you yell fire, or I want to just sweep it under the rug versus... I'm actually going to be humble enough to share with those around me where I just messed up and how we could all, what I learned from it and how I think we could all learn from it. And, and that's how others don't repeat the mistake. And collectively, we go faster. Much easier said than done. Believe me, like it's never a straight line. And especially for startups, it is ups and downs, mostly downs. <laughs> it's a roller coaster ride. <laughs> like, I mean, sometimes hours in between, you could have the, the highest of highs, the lowest of lows. It's the extremes. And that's, you know, psychologically what, what could be wearing on. A lot of people. Mm-hmm. If it's slow and steady, it's it's easy to stay the course when it's a roller coaster ride. <laughs> like existential, you think everything, the sky is falling to just pure elation. That's takes a certain kind of psyche for sure. Mm-hmm. Was there a particular moment, maybe with Portfolium, which was your first startup, new industry, you're newly in the role of a co-founder and CEO or founder and CEO, where you thought, I don't know if I can get out of this one. Like, I don't know if I can actually get up from this face plant. Was there ever a moment like that where you had to fight back and recover? 
Many. Yeah, mm-hmm. many. Resilience was was key, not just for mm-hmm. myself, but for, for the whole team. Any startup in any industry is going to be hard. That's mm-hmm. so it makes it great. If it was easy, everyone would do it and it wouldn't be as rewarding. But mm-hmm. ed tech is going to be especially tough. Like I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. We built something incredible. It still lives on to this day. And the relationships that, that we formed, and, and now a lot of us working together again here now at Drata, just unbelievable amount of, of trust and muscle memory that becomes just a huge competitive advantage. We learned a lot very quickly. I say we cut our teeth in a, in a very difficult space. EdTech, you see a, a lot of actually entrepreneurship because there's there's a lot of room for disruption. It's ripe for disruption in a lot of ways, a lot of things being done the same way it was done 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, you, of course, plenty of opportunity for new ideas, like executing on them. That's where all the learning happened. Learning how to sell into colleges and universities was massive learning process that's now paying dividends in our B2B SaaS world that we live in now. But yeah, we had to stumble and nothing was harder than than getting those first handful of logos of customers. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to be the first, but mm-hmm. then happily no one wanted to be the last. And so that's where right. we get that snowball effect. But yeah, a lot, a lot of learning and the learning never stops. <laughs> I mean, still today, we learn every single day. Yeah. Entrepreneurship is an exercise in humility in so many different respects. But that's interesting that you said one of the hardest pieces of building that business was figuring out how to sell. And it is so hard when you've never sold something before and you're learning, you know, from the ground up, it's so hard. What do you remember from that experience when when the light bulb moment went off and it started to get a little easier? Yeah, I mean, and to your point, right, there's founder-led sales in the beginning, and then a yeah. different challenge, sometimes even harder challenge of transitioning from founder-led sales to just a, a more repeatable process that you could grow a sales team around. And if you don't have product market fit, or if you're teetering on the edge of it, you don't know where that line is, it could be hard mm-hmm. to ever transition. I think one of the advantages you have actually as a founder selling is, is no one on the planet is going to be more passionate than you about yeah. this idea in mm-hmm. whatever it is that you're you're selling. And so don't don't you know devalue that 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 goes a long way, especially in getting those early adopters, those early mm-hmm. evangelists to get behind the product, because that's really what you're looking for in the beginning. You're not looking to maximize revenue. You're trying to bring on early customers that will ultimately become the biggest spokespeople for your company, for your product, whatever it is. And so definitely use that to your advantage. And yeah, it's it's never going to be a fully realized thing right out of the gate. And so before we even built anything before we even wrote the first line of code, it's you're already talking with prospective customers. You're talking to mm-hmm. the market, you're hearing their pains. Cause even in our case, it's a problem we solved for ourselves. So we thought we we knew this problem inside and out. But then you talk to dozens and dozens and dozens of companies and you start seeing patterns across your notes and it might morph a little bit and you're going to learn at every one of those conversations about what's important. So by the time you deliver something, your first version, your MVP, you already have buyers waiting. The selling's been mm-hmm. done up front. And that, again, never stops. You're constantly listening mm-hmm. to your customers and, and they help guide the way in a lot of ways. As you're recalling this experience, you're smiling a lot. <laughs> and of course, our listeners can't see that. But <laughs> it seems like as you look back on it, you have a lot of affection for that phase of your life or that phase of company building. Yeah, I try not to romanticize it too much because <laughs> it's easy to remember all the good things, but no, you, again, you have to enjoy the journey as, as tough as it is sometimes because we're all impatient. Like That's why we're, we're entrepreneurs are trying to change something and it's never overnight. And yeah, you, you got to 
you got to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. We're hearing your little ones in the background. Adam <laughs> has kids. I have kids and they're going to make appearances. So we're just going <laughs> to keep rolling with it. One of the things that you talked about was learning from failure, you know, and failing quickly and learning from it quickly and employing those lessons quickly. What strikes me about that is it's slightly different than I think sort of a glib Silicon Valley sort of term, which is that we sort of romanticize failure, not just fear failure, but it's kind of a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Ben Horowitz who said like, failing totally sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Do not want to fail. I'm trying really hard not to fail. Let's be clear. So how, like, how do you, and you obviously, you don't want to lose and you don't want to fail. I mean, you're a very competitive person, you know, starting from a kid on the soccer field all the way up through multiple companies. How do you move from a posture of fear and discomfort around failure to, hey, this is just pragmatic fact of life. And so if we're going to have to go through it, which we will, let's at least extract the learnings from it, you know, get the silver lining part of it before we move on. Yes, there's definitely a balance. The whole move fast, break things, you kind of take it with a grain of salt, like no one enjoys failure. But you do, you do learn the most when you don't get something right. There's a balance. And I think maybe having the perspective of knowing it's a long journey, right? So even as much as it might feel like a catastrophic failure in the moment, usually it's, it's not. Mm-hmm. Usually it is a, yeah, it's a giant hurdle or it's a step backwards as it might feel, but that's, how do you recover? I mean, that's going to, I always think like, even everything comes back to culture, true culture mm-hmm. is going to shine when things are not going well. It is easy for everyone to smile, high five when things are up and to the right. But when you fall flat on your face as a company mm-hmm. and you have like an embarrassing moment or whatever it is, that's when true colors are going to shine and it's actually going to make your culture stronger. It's going to make the bonds between the people stronger. Again, six and a half year journey at Portfolio and, and EdTech, a lot of the people that were there in the earliest days are now here at Drada. Mm. And we faced a lot of tough times together. And that's where that bond is, is forged. So again, I'm always trying to look on the bright side, right? Of if any and failure in the immediate doesn't mean failure in the long run. Like, geez, <laughs> there's so many mm-hmm. quotes out there. I'm probably going to butcher them, but yeah, you fail enough times. Like the people who succeed or that are successful have just failed one time less, or whatever that quote is. I mean, you just it's, it's Einstein. Yeah, Einstein among others. Yeah, failed and failed and failed, and that's why I succeed. Something exactly. like that. Yep. Where do you draw your resilience from? So obviously, you've got the super tight team. You've built up a lot of trust over multiple companies sometimes and over multiple years. Are there other aspects of your life that you draw upon for resilience? When you're in the thick of it, right now, as you said, if it's if you're in sort of a stable moment or an up and to the right moment, you know, you're kind of on top of the world. But you've talked about the whiplash of entrepreneurship and sometimes within a matter of hours finding yourself in a really difficult phase as well. How do you regain your sense of equilibrium and confidence and energy to move forward? What do you draw upon? Yeah, so it's never easy. Different things that, again, give you perspective. One, having kids definitely Mm -hmm. gives you perspective to know what's the most important thing in life. And then, yeah, family. For me, it's family. Mm -hmm. Seeing some of the the things in even my immediate family, my sister, my dad, what what they've had to overcome from just day-to-day health. That's a strength that is motivating. Like there's, Mm -hmm. if you could overcome that, like you could, Nothing I'm going to face in my day-to-day is going to be at that scale. And so seeing mm-hmm. how strong they are, I, I draw strength from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of 
my friend Kenny Vaughn says you find another gear you might not have been aware of. So will you talk to us about Drada? Talk to us about where you all are today. Recently raised a big round of funding. You're a unicorn, which is you know this almost mythical status of you know being valued at a billion dollars or more. Talk to us about where you all are today, where you see the company going, and what's exciting to you about the trajectory ahead. Yeah, it's been the word that gets getting used is unprecedented, just in terms of the growth rate, the speed, the execution. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, even before we were using that word, it was just appreciation. One, we just had an appreciation from day one of the opportunity. We started the company in July of 2020, right? Smack Amazing. in the middle of everything that was going on in the world. And we looked around and there was so much just anxiety and pain and suffering happening in the world. And we just felt this appreciation that we're in a position to even be able to do this. Like, let's... So again, let's show that appreciation by giving it everything we have right out of the gates. And so team came together very, very quickly. All that muscle memory, having worked together, having solved the problem for ourselves, it's amazing how fast you can actually go. And speed is this the ultimate currency here. And so by the time we launched, I mean, even our most aggressive projections didn't account for what we ended up seeing, which is great. And all the good things that come with that and even good problems that come with hyper growth. And so in a very short time, bringing on as many customers as we did, as quickly as we did, obviously watching revenue do what it does and, and making the, the customers the centerpiece of everything, building our entire org centered around customer success. Again, some lessons learned from EdTech that we took with us that have allowed us to just kind of step on the gas even further. And so it's like this nice virtuous cycle that started with appreciation, went into this competitive spirit that then is only pushed forward by thinking, huh, if this was unprecedented, if this was People didn't think this was possible. What else is impossible, right? Let's let's push harder. Let's keep raising that bar. And that's just transcended the whole company, which is really amazing to be a part of. And still to the, today, I have that appreciation that I, I try not to ever take it for granted that you wake up in the morning, you're working with these people that are all aligned on the mission, truly embody that culture. It's rare. And then I think, think we've done a good job. I think people know how rare it is and then they're embracing that opportunity. So now with this latest round of funding, being able to now triple inside. We went from zero to 140 people in the first year, which is talk about keeping a close eye on culture. Um, yeah. It, everything was fast. We call it draw to speed. Uh, <laughs> and, and we love it. Like it's, it's, it's the way it needs to be. And so now it's about tripling across the board this year and, and taking it to new heights. While you were telling that story, Ari actually texted me and he said, he said, I feel so proud and humble to be part <laughs> Of Drada. We do great work. We do it together and we have fun doing it. We've become a family thanks to Adam. So I just wanted to read that because it's one person's experience as part of your team and part of the culture. It really is authentic, you know, what, what you all are creating together. You've talked a couple times about how speed, you described it as speed as the ultimate currency. Why, why is that so for you all? Time. <laughs> Time is literally the most precious asset that we have, right? So how we spend that time is like the most important decision we make every day. Prioritization. Like there's there's plenty of examples of, of companies that had amazing visions, maybe even good culture and an amazing product, but they just weren't able to move at the pace they needed. It's a competitive world out there. And so usually you're working on timelines that are, are very short and normally in a case where it's hyper growth, you're not focused on profitability. And so there is 
a runway of time that you even have before you would need to either make adjustments or raise more funding. There's new competition every day. So absolutely need to have speed. This. Mm-hmm. And that only happens when you have all the other pieces together and really trust across the org in order to trust people to run at full mm-hmm. speed, right? Like I, I try to hire people better than me. <laughs> and then I try mm-hmm. to get out of their way and let them do what they do best, right? And if anything, if I'm going to get in their way, it's to move obstacles out of the way that would have otherwise mm-hmm. slowed them down. And that's how you end up, yeah, delegating and collectively moving faster. So speed is one of your core competitive advantages? Speed is the results of all of the other mm. things that represent our culture and the, those patterns of behavior. That's what allows for the speed, right? I mean, yeah. And you've talked about enjoying competition and viewing competition as a good thing, a healthy thing, a motivating thing. And then you just mentioned competition within the marketplace. How do you think about that? You know, as a CEO, as you're building your company, how do you kind of keep that perspective externally while also doing what you need to do internally to build the company? As they say, right, it's good to have competitors. If, if you're the only one doing something, there might be a good reason for that. I really think it's important I mean, for us, right? We, we attract people that have that healthy relationship with competition. And it's usually a, like an internal competitive fire. Again, that stereotypical kind of type A cartoon competitor, that, that's not... It's not what we look for. It's it's that internal drive. They're going to push themselves harder than any external competitor can. And so you'll always be aware of what the competition is doing, but it's not going to affect your own internal determination, right? And so again, if it's 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 not always a zero sum game out there, but pretty close, and you could treat it as one. So I want people who want to win and that are going to do it the right way, right? Integrity is is another one of our core values. And mm-hmm. I've always said that's that's doing the right thing even when no one's looking. Yeah, it's easy to look up and get frustrated. Maybe even swayed into cutting corners when you see it being done out there in the market, shortcuts being taken. And it takes real discipline to not give in to that and, and stay true to, to your core values and, and, and do it with integrity. And so it is absolutely, you need well-balanced people to do that. We were hearing from your kids a little while ago, <laughs> and, and you talked about having kids as one of the most remarkable things that enables you to keep perspective you know, on what really matters. And you've also talked about having kids as having a really important reason for being ruthless with your own time management. Can you share a little bit more about that? Like becoming a father, has that made you a better professional? Yes. Oh, yeah. There was a moment in between Portfolio Mandrata where before we officially kicked things into gear, I was just talking with former investors, mentors, advisors, and having a very honest moment with them saying, you know, like it's... If I have any hesitation here, it's it's that Gerardo will not ever be the most important thing in my life. I have kids now. Watching them smile, as I would say, it was just it was already reassuring. Of well, at least you have your priorities in order. You have our full support. Like because you have that in order, that's why this is going to work. And so it was almost my own internal fear of or just realizing that again, like nothing was going to come first before kids, obviously. So that that kind of forces that perspective. It forces you to build it into to how you allocate your time. It also makes me, I think, a better leader and more empathetic to everyone that comes on board that also has kids and, and just their families. And this new work from home, work from anywhere kind of environment, that any, if I see any silver lining in everything that's happened in the last few years, it's, it's that becoming the new norm. And, and me, like fully appreciative, embracing that. As, as much as we joke about hearing kids in the background, I love it now. I would hate to, to not have that. 
it definitely forces you to be more rigid with your time and be more understanding of others being rigid with their time. And so again, that, that mutual trust and empathy, I think helps a lot. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like your investors were really supportive of that. And I'd love for you to share a little bit with us around what, what were you looking for in your investors at the table this time around? You know, you've, this is now your second company. You've had a bunch of different types of interactions with venture capitalists and, and investors. And what advice do you have for other entrepreneurs building their companies as they think about who they want seated next to them around the table? Yeah, happy to share. And I definitely don't wear it as any kind of badge of honor, trust me. But just for context, maybe like over, I was just trying to add it up over the last two companies. It's just under 150 million raised from angels and VCs over six rounds. And now, of course, two companies. But you know, the first thing I always say, I'm a firm believer that fundraising is never the outcome or the goal. It's a strategy mm -hmm. or a tactic. Certainly hope no one starts a company with the goal of raising a lot of money. That should never be the goal, in my opinion. The goal is to build an incredible company, deliver massive value to your customers, right? Fundraising is just the tactic that allows mm -hmm. you to do that. It sounds super straightforward, but maybe now, today more than ever, I think it still needs to be said. Insights that I've gleaned. I mean, I learn new things every single round. I always joke with the, the VCs that you do this every day, <laughs> all day, every day. I do this maybe once every 18 months. And so even things that you might forget and then remember the next time. But to your question and to your point, I mean, who you raise from and why them is more important than any of the terms that you'll negotiate with them about the fundraise. Like at the end of the day, if you have 10 VCs all offering similar terms, like who do you choose to work with and why? It's outside of the money itself, you need to think like the value that comes with it. And not every firm or every partner at every firm is going to provide the same value to your business. Like the same way culture is very specific to your company's mission and the stage that you're at, so is who you decide to raise from. So again, some firms or, or partners, uh, firms have decades of experience with very specific type of company, product or market. Knowing that upfront, like doing your homework, talking to current and former CEOs they've invested in and running your own process to determine that value is crucial. Then there's probably the less talked about, just DNA fit. Like, who do you want to work with? I always give that advice because it's, it's for the rest of the company's life. It's a very long road. As we talked about the ups and the downs, fires that are going to need to be put out, who you're working alongside plays a bigger role than many, I think, first-time entrepreneurs might realize. Like When you're stressed at two in the morning, who are you going to be comfortable calling for help? Because life is short and startups are hard. You're already going to have the weight of the world on your shoulders as you know the CEO or as an executive at your startup. And so great VCs know that. They'll see that in you and they won't add to that weight. It's, it's their job to actually help remove some of it however they can. And so I run a process every time and I've iterated on it, but I started early, build trust, I build a relationship with these VCs long before we're raising around. I used to, before COVID, have like a non-negotiable of meeting in person, eye to eye, face to face, where you could really get a better feel for that TNA fit. And then, as I mentioned, I always connect with CEOs of other companies they've invested in to hear mm -hmm. firsthand. And especially the ones where maybe things aren't going great or they're definitely not going to the original plan. I, I really want to hear from them and, and how beneficial, how valuable the VC was in those moments. Because again, when, when things are not going well, that's when everyone's true colors shine and, and you'll see the true value that they bring. But those are some of the, like, the more important insights and they're maybe the less obvious ones when you're just trying to raise money. It's, it's easy to get lost in just the terms and, and trying to raise the, the most amount, the, the best terms and, and forget about these other really, really important things. 
Mm-hmm. I love that tip about essentially reference checking your investors and especially looking at folks where there's been friction with how the company is performing or how the relationship, the stress on the relationship, how they perform. Exactly. That's key. It's never a straight line. Adam, this has been so much fun to chat with you. And as you know, Breakline is working with folks from underselected backgrounds. They're doing their best to jump into tech. Talk to us as, as we wrap up here, parting advice for people who are interested in joining Drata. You've talked a tremendous amount about culture, work ethic, conviction, resilience, focus on the outcomes and the results, building trust. Anything else around the edges or that's core to you as you think about adding people to the team and who would be a really, really strong candidate? Well, one, thank you for having me. I mean, just being included in the list of folks you've had on the podcast is really humbling, rewarding. And for all those listening, yeah, I mean, we hammered home pretty hard on on culture this morning. I think above all else, being aligned on those values is going to be the most important thing for us. We know we could help train people. We know that we could help them. You know, Even if someone's struggling performance-wise, if they are a strong cultural fit at the company, they are so worthy of investing in. And so that's really important just to point out. I think, like I mentioned earlier, if you're listening, if you have very high expectations of yourself and everyone that, around you, like if you have a strong sense of urgency, you want to exceed expectations, that's just kind of baked into how you you operate and, and you believe in trust being essential and everything. <laughs> I mean, those are the table stakes things for us. By all means, we'd love to connect with you. We're, we're hiring across the board. All of our, the, our postings are on our career site, just drata.com forward slash careers. Very, very much. We look forward to, to chatting with you. And of course, I mean, feel free also to reach out to, to Ari and Greta and hear from them. That was caught me by surprise. Just you sharing that text from Ari. That's, that's really special. Thank you. Well, you've earned it with your leadership and with the team that you've put together. And I just want to thank you so much for carving out time for this conversation. I know that's a precious resource for you. And so appreciate your willingness to be here with us today. Thank you so much, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.